Have a few minutes? You won't believe what you can do with it. Open a Regions checking account online in as little as five minutes. Then enjoy award-winning service and banking tools and tech that help you live in the moment. Learn more at regions.com slash live in the moment. Regions Bank, member FDIC. Live from the Subaru of Gwinnett Studio, inside the Sinesta Gwinnett Place Atlanta Hotel, it's time for Regions Business Radio. Regions Business Radio is presented by Regions Bank. Brave the beginning, member FDIC. Now, here's your host, J.D. Mueller. Thank you for joining Regions Business Radio. I'm your host, J.D. Mueller. And, you know, typically when we do a podcast episode, I kick off with a little bit of a a market update. And that market update is going to sound a little different to you today because we are going to focus in on a topic that is impacting nearly all businesses across the footprint of Regions Bank. And that topic today is the topic of fraud. And I think it's important to kick it off in regards to a definition of fraud and the actual answer to it is fraud means a variety of things depending on the situation, but it always entails someone being uh, taken advantage of and losing assets, cash, whatever the case may be. And it is a situation. It's a, I hate to use this term and it may sound a little crazy, but it is a literally a pandemic across the banking industry in regards to fraud. So a couple of weeks ago, our team convened here in Northeast Georgia, and we were looking for ways to better serve you, our community of customers and prospects. And the idea came to put our best fraud resources on Regions Business Radio and have a little bit of conversation about what's impacting your business, what could impact your business, what can you do about it, and how broad does fraud hit across the United States and specifically our footprint at Regions Bank. So I've asked a couple of guys to join me and they are much smarter about this than I am. And they're going to educate you on what you can do to prevent, to protect, to get through the process. And uh, these guys are going to help us out tremendously. So with that said, I'm going to ask each of them to introduce themselves, their title and what they do at the bank. And I'm going to start, if I may, with Randy Wilborn, who's on with us today. Randy, Thank you so much for giving us some of your time, and uh, how about an intro from you? Thanks, J.D., and uh, thank you for having me here. I'm Randy Wilborn. I work in our treasury management, product management group, so most of my day is uh, spent trying to develop products and solutions that organizations use to try and not become victims of fraud. I've been in banking about 30 years and been here with the regions for about 18 years, but again, thanks for having me here. Man, it's good to have you, and that Treasury perspective will be robust in this conversation, so looking forward to that. And our other guest is Jeff Taylor. Jeff, your LinkedIn is very impressive, as is Randy's, and uh, you interact a lot on the topic of which you're an expert. So how about introducing yourself as well? Thanks, J.D. I'm also grateful to be a part of the podcast, and uh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, My name is Jeff Taylor. I am a senior vice president uh, responsible for fraud, what we call fraud forensics. I report into our corporate banking group and have experience in payments, fraud solutions, receivables platforms, lots of previous treasury management experience and have been working in this fraud area for a few years now, trying to help our commercial and corporate customers understand the risks that they face every day, as well as uh, some ways that they can remain educated and implement controls to help them prevent fraud. Very good. So for those of you listening, you can tell by these guys and their experience and what they do on a day-to-day basis, they are a resource that's available to us that we hope to make you better and stronger today as a result of this conversation. So gentlemen, I'm going to jump right in. I'm often asked, what topic do you find yourself discussing most, most with your business clients? And up until probably the last six months, I've had a single answer. And that single answer is how to find and retain quality employees. But more recently, we've added a part two to that answer. And I will tell you that every business conversation we have, whether we initiate it or our client initiates it, the topic of fraud comes up. So I'm not even sure how we measure this. I'm not sure how rampant it is. 
I don't know if we measure it by volume of incidents or dollars that, that are in jeopardy. That's a broad question, and I'm going to lay it on you guys to help me introduce that to, to the listeners. So what would you say in that regard? We do both. We measure both the number of events that occur impacting our commercial customers, as well as the dollar amounts, the dollars at risk that are associated with each of those events. And we closely follow the Association for Financial Professionals annual payments fraud and control survey. And to your question, the the main driver has always been check fraud. And I'm sure Randy will talk about this a little bit later, but seven out of 10 is 66%, but really seven out of 10 businesses surveyed in that instrument have reported being victims of check fraud. So check fraud is still a huge thing. I mean, there's still plenty of companies out there writing checks and the fraudsters know that and they are very adept at getting the information they need to either use a check for fraudulent purposes or for some reason create or some way create an impersonation of that check. Business email compromise is really the number one that we see today in the fraud industry. Ransomware gets a lot of headline uh, because of the way that it impacts a lot of critical infrastructure and large companies, but it's really business email compromise that has impacted clients across the the world, across the globe. The uh, IC3.gov reported that businesses lost $2.4 billion to business email compromise in 2021, and that number is projected to be north of $3.3 billion by 2028. So business email compromise is a huge, huge fraud vector impacting commercial clients. Just to add on to that, you know, to your question about, you know, how do you measure, how do you even measure fraud that's taking place out there? Jeff's absolutely right. Fortunately, we are able to follow a lot of the research that we've seen, like from institutions like the Association from Financial Professionals and Check Fraud. In terms of volume, it's definitely leading the pack. But, but you know, one of the things that we definitely take a close look at is not only that piece, but we look at some of the other most commonly seen financial transaction types that are made by organizations that we have the privilege of serving, uh, such as ACH and uh, wire transfers, Jeff just alluded to, commercial cards and, and so forth. So, you know, just a couple of things that I'll call out, uh, particularly around ACH, what we've seen. You know, Jeff mentioned that we're seeing six, almost seven out of ten of the organizations have said that there has been attempted or successful attempts at them using checks uh, for financial fraud. But from an ACH perspective, particularly when we look at ACH debits, we've seen that number be about 37% or almost four out of 10 who said, hey, there's been someone who tried to steal money from our organization and the financial transaction that they used was ACH debits. And we've also seen it with ACH credits, which is kind of weird because most of us like to see ACH credits post to mm-hmm. our accounts. But that yeah. number was around 25%. But we learned now to look at those numbers a little bit closer, you know, when we think particularly about the ACH credit example, we know that that is one of the tools and approaches that fraudsters are used to see if they can actually hit an account that is really a good number, see if they can actually retrieve funds from that account, and to determine whether or not that organization has tools that will prevent them from posting an ACH transaction to that account. And once they are armed with that information, then, of course, they can send a debit for an even larger number. So looking at these statistics, measuring that financial fraud that you're talking about is really critical to us. Wow. So essentially, what I think what you just described is they're pinging you with a credit. It's sort of like they're, for lack of a better term, casing a physical location. In, in Gainesville, Georgia, which is where I'm recording from today, we had an armed robbery of one of our branches earlier this week. And, you know, I assume that at some level the the perpetrator maybe rode around to check things out before he went in. And what you described is that the criminals sort of do that virtually as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's kind of like uh, whenever there's a burglar, you know, burglars break into houses where they know there's something to be stolen and something of value. uh, And those are the houses that they uh, go for. Just in the first initial comments that you guys have, my mind is racing with with thoughts and scenarios. I quickly, certainly not you know, sharing details here, but I quickly looked at our client list in, in my area of Northeast Georgia, commercial banking, and I know the list, right? And I know who's been attempted 
who we've worked with, who we've supported through any fraud attempts. Our top 10 clients, seven of those 10 have been impacted or have been attempted. So that's frightening. As our bankers are, are discussing with their clients, we often say it's not if, but when. One of the things that I really hate to see is when some organization thinks that it's not going to be them, to your point, it's not a mm -hmm. matter of you know, how much or it's just a matter of when. But, but for those think that that I am going to be that lucky business who is not going to be a target by the fraudsters, there will come a time when there are no big organizations to go after. So companies who think that they aren't too big enough to be a target, eventually the fraudsters are going to move to your level. That's when, you know, you think you don't need to be protected. You don't need to be using the tools that can be implemented to help you not become a fraud. That's when you realize that it's too late. So what I like to see us do, I like to see the bankers do is definitely have fraud prevention as part of the conversation so that businesses won't come to us and, and say, God, I really wish I had implemented that fraud prevention solution, or that fraud prevention tool that you talked to me about three months ago or three weeks ago. We, we never like to hear him say that to us. Uh, it's painful, you know, front line. It, it's, it's painful to have those conversations when, when they call you up, but we, we can talk about that. I want to, I want to try to keep it going because we are certainly going to get back to that, to that part of the conversation, but let's, let's move on a little bit. A couple of things that you guys mentioned so far, check fraud, business email compromise, ACH fraud. Let me hone in on a second as it relates to check fraud. It seems to me using my own little world as the guinea pig, that check fraud seems to be really rampant and related, I guess, for lack of a better term, to mail fraud. Our clients often will send checks to vendors. They'll send checks to employees. They're, they're putting a check in a mail somewhere, and somewhere between sending that and it being delivered, a criminal, a perpetrator's picking it up, and doing something with it. So can we talk just for a second about mail fraud and its impact on, on our customers? I've been following some information from the U.S. Postal Service, and they have reported over 2,000 assaults on postal service workers since 2020. So what, what the fraudsters are doing is they're actually robbing your local mail carrier. They're stopping those guys and ladies and taking sacks of mail out of their mail truck. And they're also acquiring and stealing the master keys that will open the blue boxes that you see on the, on the corner. And so the fraudsters have that information. They will take that mail, sort through it, attempt to find checks or invoices or statements, anything that they can use that will help them in perpetrating a fraud. And, and of course, using those master keys, they can get into the blue box also. And so there's, there's a tremendous amount of activity occurring right now in that mail fraud space or in the, the vulnerabilities around the mail delivery. And, and it, it's difficult, you know, when they find that information, they'll, they'll take those checks and they will, they'll wash potentially wash the payee name off of that check and try to deposit it uh, into an account that they control. They'll use the invoices and the statements that they may pick up to, to help them gather enough information and data to, to carry out a believable impersonation of, uh, of another party. So there's, uh, there's just a lot going on in that space. We had a client recently that sent a check to a vendor. It was intercepted in the mail. The criminal went to another bank and opened an account in the name of the business that the check was made to and made off with the money. And now our client and the client that was expecting to actually receive the check are both in a really bad predicament because of that. You know, Randy, your expertise in treasury management, the question becomes, we hear these these criminals may may pick on mail carriers. They're going to do they're going to do bad things to them. They're going to rifle through the email and get this information. What do we do to protect our clients against these types of things? You're exactly right. What we see a lot of, you know, not just them opening up a, a an account that's in a name that's similar to our client's name. A lot of times there may be small differences, but we we'll see them intercept those checks like Jeff's talking about. And they'll change the payee name on that check. 
and then they go and present it to the bank or make a deposit at some other bank. And so our client may have issued a check payable to Jeff Taylor, but Randy Wilborns goes and intercepts that check and uses one of those inks that we can get off of Amazon and lift that ink off the check and, and print Randy Wilborn on that check. And I take it and deposit it to a small bank someplace and I'll have access to the funds. But, you know, now that's a clear example of one where we've had a check alteration. There are many types of uh, check fraud out there, but that, that falls in there. And so, you know, one of the tools that we see out there that's commonly used is called positive pay, where, where we're able to actually conduct a matching. What our clients do is they tell us a little something about the checks that they issue before they issue those checks so that when those checks come in, we can conduct that matching process. And if we see that there's something different, then we will reject that check and so that we can prevent a loss from taking place for our clients. So, for example, our client may tell us that I wrote a check for $100, made payable to Jeff Taylor, and this is the check number. And so when, when that check comes in, you know, it may say $100 and it may have the right check number, but instead of saying Jeff Taylor, it now says Randy Wilborn. Well, possibly mm-hmm. they will catch that and, and we'll basically, we have a rejection process where we use something called an exception. We'll notify the client that, hey, there's a difference in this check that we just posted to your account compared to what you told us that this check is supposed to reflect. And the check, the client was pretty much says, yes, I agree, please return that check. So in that particular example, it's a small one, but we've now prevented a loss of $100. And so, again, that's just one example that we see out there. Positive pay is one of the most widely tools, not just at regional, but in the industry, are for helping to prevent check fraud. And, and there are some other things like reconciling your accounts every day. Uh, we ask customers to do that because if they see something that doesn't look right, let the bank know as soon as possible so that we can try and intervene to make sure that there's not a loss. And if I may sort of chime in a little bit on that, Randy, a lot of times you will see when they do, and I'm using air quotes, a check run, they go into their accounting software, they're going to run these checks. They can export that data from their accounting software. They'll send it to us. We'll put it in our system and we'll check those fields. What fields are we looking for in positive pay? You're exactly right. In fact, the most important ones are, are going to be the payee name, the check number, the dollar amount. Now, we also look at the check date as well. We'll have that. And obviously, you know, the customer may include some more information in that field they sent to us. You know, maybe a start date and all those, but we may not use some of that information but positive pay. But when we're conducting our matching, it's going to be that dollar amount, the payee's name, uh, the check number. Uh, and that date that they issued the check. Those are going to be the most critical pieces that we look for. Anytime that's a deviation for us at the bank, that's a red flag. So we can let the client know that, hey, there may be something wrong with this check. We need for you to take a look at it before there's a loss that occurs. And look, I'm afraid, Randy, that someone listens and they're like, oh, no, what a headache. I got to generate this file and then I got to email it. And, and And I understand that. You know, I think about I think about clients that we have and I think about friends that I have that run offices and I, and I and I get it. I mean, I really do. There's well, JD, it hasn't happened to us yet. I really don't want to take 5-10 minutes to have to run that and send it to you. But the cost of not doing that is what we're trying to convey. Are we not? You're absolutely right. That is what we're trying to convey. And then what we also see is that we'll see some business may say that we don't write a lot of checks or we write a small number of checks. But for them, I still encourage them to use a service like Positive Pay. Uh, if they don't want to go through that process of exporting their payroll file and, and trying to figure out how to send us that check issue information, you know, we have a manual entry free form where they can just go and enter that information, the payee name, the dollar amount, the check number, into our premier information reporting platform, iTreasury, and we'll get that information and we'll be able to update our telelines every 30 minutes with that information. So if someone comes into one of the branches uh, within 30 minutes after you've told us about that check that you're issuing, we're able to conduct that matching. So there's a way to manually enter that without sending files to us. Or if you need to send a file to us, we'll work with you to make sure we have a good process in place. We'll actually test your file 
And then once it's set up and going, uh, it usually works very smoothly, and then you're on your road to uh, not becoming a victim of check fraud, and it's a good feeling. And that, that journey down that road requires you to stay on the road. I mean, I, I say that because I've, I've literally heard clients sort of say, well, I didn't have time to check my exceptions or, you know, yeah, it got away from me. And, and it doesn't matter if you're sending two checks a week or 2,000 checks a week. One instance of your routing number and account number being in the field is, is an instance that a criminal can take advantage of. Check fraud, mail fraud, those things, those are the highest impact that we've had so far in the North Georgia Gwinnett area are, are those two. So I'm glad we, we talked about that. And I would say, too, positive pay shouldn't even be something that, that that's negotiated. It should be an expectation. And I would say to those listening, if your bank, because we do have listeners that don't bank with us, if your bank hasn't talked to you about positive pay, we are not saying on Regions Business Radio that we're the only bank that does this or we're the only bank battling fraud. We're trying to be a good partner and, and share with you Go talk to your bank, wherever you may bank. If your banker hasn't talked to you about positive pay, hit pause on this podcast. Call them up right now and say, I need to talk to you about positive pay. Do it now. We won't be offended. You can come back and listen to the rest of the episode later. But that, that's a free message from Regions Business Radio. Take action now so you avoid the loss later. If, if I could add one thing, too, I think it's important to note for the audience that any time that you can convert those payments to an electronic delivery channel like ACH or even real-time payment, that that's a much more secure platform for processing your payments as opposed to the paper process. Can you describe real-time payments? Sure. Real-time payments is, is a product that we have just recently launched at regions that there are a number of companies or number of financial institutions across the country that offer real-time payments but real-time payment is a is literally a payment that you can generate that will post to the recipient's account in a real-time methodology so within it depends on the the receiving bank obviously but in most cases a real-time payment will post to that individual's account, your intended beneficiary, within minutes at the, uh, at the very least. Those listening, you can't see the look on my face, but I'm, I'm really sort of holding back because that is exciting. But at the same time, I'm going to paint a picture, a hypothetical picture for you that, that, that could be real. Let's say I'm going through real-time payments and I'm thinking about when it's most important. Sometimes you may have a company that, that deals with industrial recycling where where, where people will come in and drop off a load of metal and the recycling company would historically would write them a check, put it into positive pay, and then the person that's dropped off the metal, they get a check for what they've delivered, then they go cash it. Real-time payments, if, if someone sophisticated enough could work there, so could some sort of pay card. But I'm also specifically thinking about a real estate closing, if you will, where an attorney is closing a real estate deal, buyer seller at the table. Typically what happens is, and we love our attorney friends, they, they sort of walk out of the office for a few minutes. They say, I'll be right back with some checks. They go somewhere, they go to their office, they print out these checks and they come out and they're, they're handing the checks. The seller gets their proceeds and maybe there's a, you know, they need to send some checks to a homeowners association or, or maybe a power company or something. In that situation where people, especially around a real estate closing, is there an application for real-time payments in that scenario, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, absolutely there is. Now, keep in mind, though, there are a number of different platforms utilized that consider themselves to be what are considered faster payments or real-time payments in the big umbrella. Okay. There are person-to-person -person payments that use platforms like Zelle, those kinds of transactions between individuals and then the real-time payment platform that that we're offering is is more of a business-to-business -business platform okay. so okay. when you think about that attorney settling with either the the seller who might be another corporation or they're paying off a loan at another financial institution 
then then yes, I could see that as being applicable from uh, from a real time payment standpoint. And, and there are so many different different use cases for both platforms, for the real time payment platform as well as the the P two P platforms. Okay, I hear that, and I think how useful real time payments could be certainly to avoid fraud, which is the topic here, but also streamline the customer experience in in some instances. So maybe maybe we'll revisit that on another episode later. So thank you for, for yeah. bringing that up. We definitely have some experts in that area. Yeah, we need to get them on. That's that's a good job. <laughs> we talk about business email compromise. When I hear that, I think about, you know, hacked email. I think about phishing, things of that nature that contribute to fraud as well. When we think about those topics, business email compromise, phishing, what do we do to help in that scenario and what advice would we give those that are listening today? Well, that's a good intro because almost all of these types of fraud are begin with some sort of phishing, uh, either an email, a voicemail, a text message of some sort that entices the potential victim to either click on a link or call a phone number, something that will will engage them with the fraudster. And then at that point, the fraudster knows they have someone on the hook. Uh, they begin asking them questions and trying to gain more information that they can use for the fraud. And, and oftentimes the fraudster will ask them for their username and password. And, and I think it's important to note that the bank will never, ever ask you for that information. We will never. I'm going to stop you right there, Jeff. I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I, want, I want us to revisit exactly what you said. The bank will never ask you for that information. That's right. Rewind and say it for us one more time. <laughs> the bank will never ask you for the combination of your username and password. We don't need that information. We don't want that information. Now, we may ask you for your username to help authenticate you, but we will never ask you for the combination of your username and password. So if someone asks you for that information, it's likely going to be a fraudulent phone call. And it's it's a case where you need to think through, I, I never want to share that information with another individual or provide that information to someone else. Back to business email compromise. As I said, most of these begin with a phishing or some sort of phone call. And, and you know, it's, we believe that employee education and awareness are capstones in fighting fraud. So the more things that we can do, just like this podcast, the more things that we can do to try to help educate our audiences and listeners and clients and potential clients and prospects, the more we can help to educate them on the fraud vectors that they face as a business, and then help them to look at each of those situations and develop controls in their own business environment to help stop those. You know, things like having dual control, uh, multi-factor authentication, uh, dual control around payments, all the different things that are necessary in order to, to stop the product or stop the process before it ever occurs. Uh, we provide videos and uh, we send emails out to our clients. We do a number of different articles and publications uh, in conjunction and in partnership with our corporate marketing and corporate communications partners to try to get that message out as much as we possibly can. And and truthfully, J.D., we, we're here, Randy and I, to develop an army of fraud fighters. We want people out talking about this on social media, in their civic groups that they're a part of, your Bible study. I mean, whatever you're doing, whatever, whenever you are connecting with people, you want to make sure to, to mention this and talk with them about the potential of these types of frauds and, and share it with your family. Certainly older members of your family that, uh, that might potentially fall victim to uh, an elder abuse scheme or scam. It's just so important. There's so many different varieties there that make it difficult to know how do I recognize this and how do I stop it? Trying to get somebody to click on a link from an email that seems like it's safe. When they click on that link, a lot of times that's when malware or potential virus could be downloaded onto somebody's computer or server, giving that fraudster more control and more visibility 
that they didn't have before someone actually clicked on that link. So at the end of the day, you know, there are a lot of things that could take place where they're trying to get somebody to do something that ordinarily they wouldn't do. But making sure that the employees are vigilant and that they know some of the signs to look for goes a long way. Yeah, if it doesn't look right, it's probably not, you know. And, And J.D., the fraudsters are not discriminant. They don't care. We see cases across all different business segments, different size businesses, Cases from $400 to $10 million, it, it doesn't matter to them what the size of the business is or, or what the segment of the business is. And, and if I could explain business email compromise real quick, I mean, I know I live this every day, so it's, it's, a, little, it's a little easier for me to understand it. But there, there are three basic iterations of business email compromise. The one that when this started, it was more of an executive impersonation. So uh, the fraudster would impersonate a, a trusted partner like or, or a C-suite executive, maybe the, an attorney or the CEO, CFO of the company. And the fraudster would create an email that looks like it came from that individual, that trusted partner to someone who would originate the payment. And, and, and of course, the payment would then get originated and it would go to an account controlled by the fraudster. We don't see that as much anymore. The bigger volume of transactions we see in business email compromise are around the second two and it's vendor impersonation. That's typically when the fraudster will impersonate your trusted vendor and they indicate that they have maybe changed their banking relationship and they're, they want you to change the, the payment instructions to send the payment to this routing and transit and account number that is an account that's going to be controlled by the fraudster. And then the, the third one is uh, employee impersonation. And Randy mentioned this a moment ago about the rise in ACH credits uh, and the, the involvement of ACH credits in fraud. One of the reasons for that is that, that this employee impersonation impacts direct deposit of payroll. And so oftentimes we as, as individuals will use one of the free email services. And it's very easy for the fraudster to take your legitimate email and make some minor adjustment to that email to make it appear that it's coming from you and it goes to your human resources and payroll department and says, hey, I'm changing my bank. I'm going to be banking with this. Here's the routing and transit and account number that I would need for you to send my next payroll to. And so the payroll department makes that change, comes around to payday, and that payroll actually goes to the account controlled by the fraudster and not to your legitimate payroll account that you have always used. Keeping in mind those three different channels and three different ways that business email compromise can be carried out is important because it helps you then to become more aware of those kinds of requests and then to validate those kinds of requests we're so accustomed in our culture today to being sort of comfortable. You know, we want things to be easy. And and in doing so, a lot of times we'll sort of fall asleep at the wheel or we'll be lackadaisical with processes in our jobs. And raising the awareness, like you guys have said, contributes to the conversation. It's really frightening to me. Everything that you guys are describing, I have a, a friend, um, in some cases, a loved one or, or a colleague that, that's experienced every one of these things. So I want to jump to the education part, and then I'd like to lead into a conversation about what do we do after someone's been a victim of fraud. But we're advocating for a concept. I mean, it's pretty simple, right? Stop, call, and confirm. Does that apply now when we're, we're going to educate our clients? We're going to educate folks in our community. What do you do? Aside from positive pay, ACH fraud filter, what do you do aside from making sure that your network is always being updated and that you that you have the right firewalls in, in place? There's an operational and convenience piece to this that really is, I think, as important as any of the other things that I just mentioned. So which one of you guys want to introduce us to stop, call, and confirm? I'll do that if that's okay. We came up with this. Just as, as you just said, a very simple way to help try to remediate business email compromise. I mentioned about controls that companies can put in place on their side of the process to, to really stop these kinds of events from occurring. 
and these kinds of payments from being created in the very beginning. So if you receive a request that is to change the terms of a payment, to originate a new payment to someone that you've never paid before, we encourage you to stop your process, stop what you're doing, pick up the phone and call the person who's making that request at a number that you know. Don't call the number in the email and don't respond to the email because you're likely going to be communicating with the fraudster. But you pick up the phone and call that person at a number that you know and then confirm with them that that request is legitimate. And, and I say this all the time, J.D., it's a five-minute phone call and it's a whole lot easier to explain why I'm calling in that five-minute period than it is to explain a million-dollar loss. That's frightening. That is that is really frightening, and I've seen it before. You guys see it all the time. Even in my little market, I've seen it. I was at dinner last night. We had a closing dinner with a client. One of the gentlemen at the table is someone that years ago, this was 10, 12 years ago, I was in his office. I'll tell you how long ago. I was in my office with my BlackBerry, and <laughs> he thought that he was emailing me. The emails weren't coming to me. Somebody had compromised something somewhere. And he was communicating with someone else. He thought it was me. It was frightening. And and it was a lesson that I still remember so vividly to this day that these criminals are, I hate to say it, but they're wise. You know, they're really smart with this stuff. And they know human nature. And human nature is, hey, don't bother me. I'm busy. Yeah. Well, we need to change that with our stop, call, and confirm concept Stop what you're doing, like like you said, Jeff, and don't think about that as the imposition, because when you have to call your boss and tell your boss that a million dollars has just left the company and we don't know how we're ever going to get it back, that's the imposition that we're hoping that you will avoid. Golly, it just it blows my mind. I hope that people that are listening can understand the depth of what we're talking about. Randy, I'd be remiss if I didn't get you in on stop, call, and confirm. The only thing I'll add to that is what you mentioned a little while ago was the education piece, and, and that's definitely where the stop, call, and confirm falls into is the education. Not just not just the you know the critical and key decision makers of the company, but but the people who actually do a lot of the legwork within the company, making sure that they are aware right. of that approach and that they're putting that into practice. Too, and so I think I think that is very critical piece of it, that educational piece of it, and like you mentioned a little while ago, our human tendencies and the fraudsters, they are aware of things that how we react emotionally and things like that. You know, when we receive an email that says your your tax payment is past due, click here to see more information. Fraudsters know that's something that we're going to click on really fast. Or if we receive an email that that says we're from the IRS and we haven't received your tax payment or this is UPS and we're about to return a package that's delivered to you, click here to get more information. They know that we're going to be likely to click on that because we're curious individuals and, and Frosters know about our human tendencies. All of that, in my opinion, falls under the educational piece where we are being taught and trained to react a little differently than we normally would so that we can be part of that army to help fight fraud, like Jeff mentioned a little while ago. That's changing the way that we've always done things based on knowledge that we received through education. The AFP survey also identified some of the departments within companies that are most likely to be the vulnerable departments. All of that communication needs to be pushed down to departments like accounts payable, payroll, vendor management, those kinds of areas within your organization that may not be as aware of this as you might be at the at the entrepreneur at the C-suite level. So you've got to create those kinds of employee education and awareness programs to make sure that they are hearing that same message. And the utilization of the videos that I mentioned earlier that we've got available uh, on our, we have a webpage called regions.com slash stop fraud and one that's regions.com slash fraud prevention. And you can go to those sites as well as to the region's YouTube site and download those videos and use them in your employee education campaigns. I'm, I'm encouraging my team to just start with their customer list and start sharing those videos and make it, you know, almost a regular, if not weekly, 
every every couple of weeks thing where we're just touching them with a reminder. Some of the terms I've 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 learned is an, an army of people fighting fraud. You know, we got to be on that army. And, and Jeff, the, the real cool one I thought was fraud vectors. I'm going to use that in some uh, some conversations. These are fraud vectors. We need to watch out for that. So, okay. So to to get us to this point, there's a variety of fraud methods, for lack of a better term. We got our business email compromise. We got phishing. We have check fraud. We have mail fraud. We have all these things going on. I've experienced them in my own life. You guys deal with them every day. So if I may, and I don't know how far we can get into this, but let's fast forward and heaven forbid, maybe we can help somebody avoid fraud by listening to this thing. But I'm also well enough aware that somebody may listen to this and they may have been a recent victim of fraud. They may be going through fraud now. What happens on the other side of fraud? Once fraud has occurred, what goes on from there? The rules are a little bit different between the commercial space and the consumer space. So, you know, there's a a distinct difference between the two. And and really what I speak to more often is the commercial side of of what happens when that when a fraud occurs. And we we encourage the client to to do two things. One, contact your bank. If you realize that you've been a victim of fraud, contact your bank. And then from a business standpoint, you would want to report that fraud to a website that's called IC3.gov. It's the Internet Crime and Complaint Center. It's a joint venture that uh, of federal law enforcement where they track these types of cyber crimes. And, and they're looking for commonalities within each of these reports to try to determine, is there a, a specific ring of people that they can can prosecute some people that they can go after uh, that are doing things the same way. And so it's always a good idea to report it there. We typically try, JD, to work with the receiving financial institution to attempt to recover funds on behalf of the client. You've got to realize that, that when those funds leave your account from a commercial standpoint, the potential for recovery is limited. and a transaction that leaves the country, if it's outside of the United States, it's even more limited. So, you know, we, we do our best to try to recover on your behalf, but we're, we're not always successful in being able to do that because speed is the most important thing. So, you know, if we find out, the faster we find out about a fraudulent transaction, then we're able to, to kick that process off, reach out to the receiving financial institution, and then they can, at that point, do their investigation to to potentially freeze that account and return what funds might be available. But the fraudsters, as you said earlier, they're very crafty. They're very good at what they do, and they move the money out fast. As soon as the money hits the account, they're working to try to move it out. They use a network of what are called mule accounts, and those individuals have been either convinced to participate in the, in the fraud, what we call witting or unwitting. They, are, they may knowingly be participating in a fraud or they may actually unknowingly be participating by thinking that they're a part of a, a work from home scheme or scam and some sort of network of what's, what amounts to laundering funds from one account to the other. And so you, you have this network of transactions where this occurs. Typically, a, a transaction may, may have four or five different hops before it actually leaves the country. So the, the fraudster may dilute that transaction amount to make it more difficult to, to track, and it may go to a number of different financial institutions before it actually lands in the hands of the, of the eventual fraudster. So there's, there's just a great deal of, of work that has to occur once we determine that that fraud has, been, has occurred and we're able to, to conduct the investigation, we need to reach out to that uh, receiving bank, then we're going to do our best to try to get funds. But like I said, it, it's less likely than it is likely. And, and that's a hard lesson. That's a hard message to send, Jeff, because I think most everyone listening would say, you know, well, well, you're the bank, you know, I want my money back. 
And to think that it's less likely that your funds are returned than it is more likely that they are returned, that should provoke people to, to, to an action. In the bank, you know, we have our annual compliance courses that we take and we learn and we all, it's sort of ingrained in us as bankers. I mean, I would think that looking at everybody on the line, you know, we, we, we have a little bit of experience in this field. We all know that we're the first line of defense when it comes to fraud or to risk of all types. But if you think about a manufacturing company in, you know, in Gwinnett County, Georgia, they don't wake up with fraud on their mind. You know, they're they're waking up thinking, I got to fill this order. I got to make sure that this mold comes in today so that we can fill it with, you know, our plastic injection molding. And, and this customer needs something. They don't wake up with this on their mind. And, and then it becomes this inconvenience because we're asking them to help us by telling us which checks they've written and to who and for how much through positive pay. Then it hits and, and their expectation is just give me my money back. But what I'm hearing you say is because of the complexity that we do not see, the likelihood of those funds being returned is less likely than more likely. And we need to continue. The theme somehow is don't be inconvenienced by doing what's right up front because you'll be really inconvenienced when the money's not recovered. Yeah, um, that's right. Golly. And, and it's important to, to, to think about, too, if we are the originating financial institution, we're at the mercy of the receiving financial institution. So you, you think about it, they have to conduct their investigation on their side. They're just not going to take our word for it that this was a fraudulent transaction. They need to look at, at their client and their client's transaction activity to determine if they believe that this is fraudulent. And then at that point, obviously, we're going to recover as whatever we can and whatever funds might be available. We have a lot of work to do, not just as a bank, but as a business community to continue to, as we say internally, raise the red flag, right, to, to be the, the fraud army. I think that's a good jumping off point. You know, there's probably three more episodes that we could do by the end of the year on on various topics. I think we've done our clients and our community well by introducing and raising the awareness today. I certainly hope that's the case. But before we, we close out and sort of say our goodbyes, Randy, would you have any closing thoughts that you would that you would like to share with those that are listening today? My final words would really just be to make sure that that you have that conversation with your bankers about any tools that are available to help you from becoming a victim of fraud and also talk to them about opportunities for educating your employees to make sure that they can spot these tactics that a fraudster may use so that they can be equipped to make sure your organization does not become a victim of fraud by clicking on an email that they shouldn't click on uh, or by changing some payment information like they would normally do every day not realizing that the future payments may be going to a fraudster like we see with business email compromise. Just make sure that, that that's part of the conversation is the big piece. You know, Randy, if I may, uh, before Jeff wraps up with his final thoughts is we've lost, we've lost our curiosity in things. You know, I mean, we, we, we've replaced curiosity with complacency. And, and what we want people to do is be curious about what is, if there's a change, you have got to trigger your curiosity. Why, why is this changing? Randy always calls me with a change, but why would he email me today? We have to be more curious about why these things are changing. That's that's sort of what what I heard there in addition to what you were saying, Randy. So and thank you, by the way, for being here. And I know you've you've helped us out in the past and it's always good to, to have you with us. And we're so glad that there are gentlemen like yourself and your colleagues on your team that are looking for ways for the bank to serve and to protect our, our clients. So uh, uh, thank you very much. We appreciate you being with us today. Jeff, final thoughts? J.D., you mentioned the curiosity. I, I think that's really, really important. And if something doesn't look right or if it just doesn't feel right, trust your gut. Trust that you need to further investigate and, and look it further into that. Put that control in place. Put stop calling control or stop calling confirm into places of control. You know, it, it, it's not a golden egg, but it will certainly help you to remediate business email compromise. Because if you if you call that requester and verify that 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 request is legitimate, they're likely going to tell you that it wasn't them. 
And if it and if it was them, then that's all the better. You know, it makes the makes you feel so much better and more confident in that transaction. So developing those controls, developing your response plan, if in fact that you are a victim, and, and then developing that employee education and awareness program is extremely important. So I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate the opportunity to just to talk through these kinds of events and and as you said these fraud vectors so that our clients and and prospective clients and, and friends are even more aware of what's going on out there today and be able to help try to educate themselves and prevent it so thank you yeah look i, I would like for everybody listening to know that we're so blessed that you think about regions and when you think about our team in northeast georgia you well, really, you may be listening to this. We've had people listen in Louisiana and Texas to this podcast. And when you think of regions, you think about your banker. You think about that RM, that commercial RM that's, you know, you see at the grocery store. You may go to worship together. You may be at the ball field together. I think it's important for our clients to know that we have guys like y'all that also serve them. It's not just us. It's the Randys and the Jeffs of the world. And by the way, you know, our assistants, our commercial assistants are involved in this a lot. I was talking to one of ours just yesterday and I said, how much time are you spending on fraud comparing that to how much time do you get to spend sort of loving on the customers? And and she said probably three times as much time is spent on fraud than caring for customers. So I say that not to say that that we're failing in that. I say that to say that that it is a big big problem and we are here to help we're here to talk it through we're familiar with the process of of what happens and how to avoid it we'll get randy's team involved we've got our treasury management team involved we can help you but in return we ask you to also help us by by embracing stop call and confirm i've heard those calls guys i've heard those calls where somebody has to say Whoops, that went that went to the wrong place. And I've also heard our assistants call our clients and say, hey, something looks different here. Let me verify this with you. And in that interaction, you're building trust, you're building a relationship. And that's where they go. I am so glad you called to confirm that, because if you hadn't, money was going to walk out the door. Those are just business disciplines that need to be built in today. So, again, gentlemen. Thank you for being with us today on Regions Business Radio. It's been a, an absolute stellar episode that I think people need to listen to three or four times. We'll get you back on. And for those of you listening today, thank you so much for listening to Regions Business Radio. Regions Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This information is general in nature and is not intended to be accounting, legal, tax, investment, or financial advice. Regions believes this information to be accurate when recorded, but it cannot ensure that it will remain up to date. Consult an appropriate professional concerning your specific situation. The information should not be construed as a recommendation of a specific course of action for any individual or business. All Regions products and services are subject to qualification requirements, terms, conditions, fees, and credit approval. 